Good morning and welcome everyone to today's Budget Committee hearing. Uh, we have uh, several current and former members of Congress as well as other tax policy experts testifying before us today. We have a, a, actually a very large lineup, so I want to get started here right on time. Our witnesses will be divided into three panels today, so in an effort to ensure that all our members are able to get their questions and, and comments, and I'll try and keep my remarks brief and ask that all members uh, try and stick to their allotted time as well so that we can hear from our panel of witnesses who uh, have assembled here today to give us as representatives on the Budget Committee, which will start, who will start this process of tax reform if it starts at all, uh, some opportunity to hear their wisdom and their advice as we consider tax reform. Back in July, this committee held a hearing to try and get a reasonable, comprehensive understanding as to why our current tax code isn't working and uh, the best interests, really, uh, for that matter, anyone involved uh, for America's workers who pay into the system uh, and the federal government which it funds. I thought it was a, a pretty effective visual then at the last hearing, so today I've asked to uh, to bring in the tax code again, and it sits uh, across the uh, across the hall over on on the side table there. As you can tell from just looking at the pile on the desk, there are that's probably one of the main reasons why we're here. We've got 23 volumes of the IRS code itself, uh, with uh, 21 volumes of federal tax regulations written by the Treasury Department, uh, which apparently are necessary to explain the first 23 volumes. Uh, and uh, that is just the base of our tax code. There's also walls and walls in the uh, Library of Congress uh, dedicated to housing the tax court decisions, IRS rulings, uh, which were needed to further explain the 44 volumes uh, which we have here. But really, we really had no adequate staff or space to uh, bring in those volumes and get them over here for, for visual. I think you get my picture. It's complicated. Uh, although tax writers uh, have perfectly good intentions, and I can tell you that because I'm one of them serving on the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, we, uh, we have good intentions providing tax relief to, to struggling American workers to make ends meet, uh, to help boost our economy, uh, which it certainly has. We've provided the re relief and our economy has received a jolt and a boost, and, and that's positive. We just end up making the code bigger and more complicated every year, even with those good intentions. Ideally, we should have a tax code that is reasonably simple, efficient, not overly burdensome, as uh, fair as we can possibly make it, and as understandable or transparent as possible. And I bet that we can all agree that our current tax system provides few, if any, of those things. Uh, an important issue that was brought up at the last hearing was, uh, why do we have to deal with this now? Uh, the problems in our tax code certainly aren't new. It's been 20 years since we passed major tax reform legislation. Uh, back 1986 was the last time this was attempted. So why should we do this now with everything else that's going on? Well, as we're all aware, several factors have been coming to a head in, in, the, in these next few years, including the retirement of the baby boomers, the expiration of tax provisions, uh, and the individual alternative minimum tax, or the AMT. Uh, and we face all of these on top of a whole host of large, relatively new demands in our budget in a climate of deficits. Uh, we've incurred in response to extraordinary circumstances in these past few years. So now is exactly the right time uh, to get about dressing the, addressing the problem of our revenues. Uh, and given the background uh, created by the previous hearing, today we've uh, taken the next step. Today we've invited a whole range of experts, 
uh, both within our Congress, fellow members and colleagues, to discuss some of the most prevalent uh, proposals for reforming and in some cases totally replacing our federal tax code. This is an Im immensely complicated challenge, but it is also a great opportunity to get everything on the table and really begin the discussion on what uh, may be one of our best options as we proceed forward. And I want to make it very clear that I'm not here or we're not here to try and pick one of those uh, that we think is best today. Uh, the purpose of this hearing, again, is to get a decent understanding of what there are in terms of a better way to tax. And I'm not expecting today's discussion to give us an aha moment where we all of a sudden say that's the answer to the problem. Well, maybe Mr. Linder uh, may have one of those moments. We'll see. Uh, he's had them before. I know I've heard him give his, uh, his talk before. But I do know uh, that we will learn a lot if we listen closely to the ideas of our colleagues and members from outside our Congress who are experts on this issue. Finally, I'm sure that we could fill up an entire hearing with finger-pointing on which parties to blame. Uh, I, I hope even though there might be that, that temptation, today really was meant, I think, on, on members' parts on both sides uh, to use this as a learning opportunity. Uh, if people want to take that opportunity, I guess I would invite you to take it outside to the microphones. I'm sure someone will want to listen to you. But today, we really do want to learn. That's what the purpose of this hearing is all about. So with that, uh, we have a very serious and important subject matter before us. And I'd be happy now to turn to Mr. Spratt for any comments he'd like to make. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. In the fiscal year just ended, revenues hit an all-time low, or at least a low level that has not been seen since 1950, 16.2% of GDP. This precipitous drop in revenues is directly related to a precipitous rise in the deficit. It too hit a record this year, $422 billion, the highest in history, $47 billion worse than last year. And even though the economy is eking out of recovery, slowly getting better, the bottom line of the budget is not getting better. We have what economists call a structural deficit built into the tax code and built into the spending side of the budget as well. Faced with this same sort of problem in the 1990s, we adopted three multi-year budgets and put the budget in surplus phenomenally by $236 billion in the, year fiscal, in the fiscal year 2000, just four short years ago. We had a surplus of $236 billion. Looking back on those years at the end of the 90s and analyzing the budget and what accounted for this success finally in subduing the deficit, CBO attributed half of our success, half of our success to the increase in revenues and half to the curbs in spending that we adopted from 1990 to 1993 to 1997. In the year 2001, when President Bush took office, he had an advantage that no president in recent times has enjoyed, a budget and surplus, big-time surplus, $127 billion that year. We begged him not to bet the budget on huge tax cuts tilted to the rich. He did, and we see the result today, worse than we feared, a deficit of $422 billion. As we go into fiscal year 2005, we have no budget resolution, no multi-year plan, no plan at all, and no prospect of any kind of program for erasing the deficit over the uh, next fiscal year. 
For sooner or later, the day of reckoning will come. The deficit will have to be dealt with, and when it is, revenues will have to be part of the solution as they were in the past. One way to increase revenues is to broaden the tax base by abolishing the accretion of deductions, credits, preference, and exemptions that have grown up over time. We did this in 1986. We broadened the tax base and brought revenues and brought rates down, down significantly. And frankly, the tax code is long overdue, another closet cleaning like that, where we go through the accretion of deductions and exemptions and credits and preferences. Instead, we're doing just the opposite. Every time a tax bill is passed, it picks up more accretions like this. One purpose of tax reform is simplification. It's a worthy purpose. There's no question that the tax code and tax regulations even more have grown enormously. But there's another, in my, in my feeling, more important goal, and that's tax fairness. We never should lose sight of it. Distributing the tax burden equitably over all income classes and all people in our society. In this connection, it's important that we not buy into plans that are superficially simple, but shift the burden of taxation off wealth and onto wages, off capital and onto salaries and wages and earned income. And that's not just some rhetorical concern. We had a chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors say not long ago that the best rate for income from wealth is zero. And you see that pattern in many of the proposals presented today. Indeed, virtually all of the proposals presented today do just that. They shift the burden of taxation off wealth and onto wages. I don't really think that stated in that fashion, that's a goal that I know Democrats don't share and I don't think most Americans share, that our objective in sex reform is to shift the burden off those who've done well on the those who are still working and leaving them bearing the weight of the system. So as these complicated proposals are made today in the interest of simplicity, we've got to discern and be careful we evaluate them as to whether or not they shift the burden. If so, who ends up holding the real burden of supporting the federal revenues? And I hope that today's hearing will begin to help us see the advantages and disadvantages of the different proposals before us, but also help us keep in mind that we do not want to sacrifice fairness for simplicity. That said, we need to be looking at new and new ways of raising revenues because if the next Congress gets earnest about the deficit, revenues will have to be part of any serious solution. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much, and thank our witnesses for taking the time to come and prepare their testimony. Thank you, Mr. Spratt. I'd ask unanimous consent that all members would be given an opportunity to put a statement in the record at this point, and uh, that I also uh, tell our uh, witnesses that your entire testimony will be made part of the record, and uh, you may summarize your testimony as, uh, as, as you wish. Uh, I'll take you in the order in which you arrived. That way, I, I assume for that reason, uh, your effort to get here will be rewarded so you can uh, go out and take care of other business. I know Mr. Linder needs to be on the floor. So we'll begin with uh, Mr. Linder from Georgia. Welcome to the Budget Committee, and we're pleased to receive your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> I'd like to uh, have a statement put in the record, and I'd also like to put in the record a response to a recently distributed critique of a national sales tax by Ms. Pelosi in, in a press conference, 20-plus pages, uh, 
purporting to criticize H.R. 25, my bill, but obviously criticizing something of their own design. It was simply not designed, uh, the criticism was not aimed at the bill that I actually drafted. I'd like to summarize by saying any plan we have for tax relief or tax reform ought to follow some guiding principles. I think it ought to be fair. Uh, I think anything we do ought to untax essentials so that people living at or below the poverty line pay no taxes whatsoever. It ought to be simple and easy to understand for every American. We ought to, my bill is 132 pages as compared to 55,000 pages of regulations. It ought to be voluntary. Our current system is coercive, corrosive, intrusive, abusive. We ought to have a voluntary system where everybody pays taxes when they choose, as much as they choose, for how they choose to spend. Anything we do ought to be transparent. We ought to know all the costs, including the hidden costs. One of the studies we commissioned out of Harvard, uh, head of economics at Harvard at the time, Dale Jorgensen, concludes that on average, 22% of what we're currently paying for at retail represents the embedded cost of the current system. We're paying all the income tax costs, the payroll tax costs, and compliance costs of every business entity that had a role in building that house or that loaf of bread. Um, and on average, we're losing 22% of our purchasing power to the current system. What we do ought to be border neutral. Our exports must be unburdened by any tax component in the price system. We're uncompetitive in the world markets simply because nations that we, with which we compete that have a VAT, a value-added tax, rebate that at the, at the borders, and we're uncompetitive because everything we sell has our social welfare costs embedded in it as well as our other costs. And I'd be industry neutral. I never understood why I, as a dentist serving in the Georgia legislature, could make a pretty decent income without having to collect a state tax when all my neighbors, the retailers, had to collect it. I think it should tax all goods and all services equally. We ought to strengthen Social Security and Medicare, whatever we do. Larry Kotlikoff, an economist from Boston University, has concluded in a recent study that the 75-year unfunded liability in Social Security and Medicare in today's dollars is $51 trillion. Trillion. The entire household wealth in America is $43.8 trillion. If we took everything away from every American and took the value of their assets and applied it against the shortfall, we'd cover 80% of it. We must do, and, and setting aside a few bucks, uh, a few percent of whatever we do with Social Security and Medicare is simply not going to save it. Any system that is predicated on workers paying for retirees when the baby boomers retire is going to fail. We're going to increase the number of retirees in the next 30 years by 100%. We're going to increase the number of workers paying for them by 15%. That system simply cannot survive. If you go to a tax on personal consumption like I propose, what you wind up doing is tripling the numbers of people paying into the system. You go from 138.5 million workers to about 290 million Americans every time they buy something, plus 40 to 50 million visitors to our shores. The last thing is it must have manageable transition costs. Um, the $51 trillion is simply unsustainable in our current system. Under my plan, the national consumption tax, we would have one transition rule, and that is any inventory held at the on the 31st of December can be used as a credit against collecting the tax in the future years because that inventory already has the tax embedded in it. We should only tax everything one time. Uh, we have about $1.4 trillion in inventory in the economy at any given time. 
uh, roughly a fourth of that is $350 billion. That's the entire transition cost of my proposal. There are some economic drivers that are going to force us to take a hard look at this. The first one is the 22% embedded. Every time we sell something overseas, we're losing we're losing to our competition because we have such a large comp uh, embedded cost in the goods and services we sell. Secondly, we spend somewhere in the range of $400 billion just complying with the code. We spend six to seven billion man hours filling out federal paperwork, IRS paperwork. We spend probably that amount of time just calculating the tax implications of a business decision. We lose 18% of our economy to making tax decisions as opposed to economic decisions. That adds up to somewhere in the range of $400 billion a year just complying with the code. We have a trillion dollar underground economy just in pornography, illicit drugs, and illegal labor. That doesn't include all the other things that happen under the table. But with those three components make up a trillion dollar untaxed economy. We have driven offshore six trillion dollars in capital. The IRS thinks it's five trillion. Offshore financial centers say it's six trillion. Those are dollars offshore that it's too expensive to repatriate. They would rather borrow at 6% interest than repatriate at 35% taxes. Those dollars would all come to our shores if we were to untax capital and labor. And my bill would totally eliminate all taxes on income whatsoever, personal income tax, corporate income tax, gift tax, estate tax, capital gains tax, alternative minimum tax, all those would be gone for a one-time tax on personal consumption. The number is 23 cents. Currently, if you earn a dollar, you give 36 cents to Uncle Sam. Under my system, if you spend a dollar, you give 23 cents to Uncle Sam. And the rebate system that we've devised in this to every household, not rich or poor, because we're not going to know who's rich or poor, to every household totally rebates the tax consequences of spending up to the poverty line. For a family of one, that's $9,500 a year. For a family of six, that's 30000 a year. They can spend that amount of money totally untaxed. So low-income people are the big beneficiaries of going to a personal consumption tax as devised by, by H.R. 25 because they no longer lose the 22% of their purchasing power to the current system. Competition drives that out of, out of the price system, and prices decline by 20 to 30%. And then they get rebated. Everybody gets rebated. A, a check sufficient to totally untax them off to the poverty line. Who's going to pay for this? Uh, accumulated wealth. People who have paid taxes on their earnings all their life, paid taxes when they sold the company, paid taxes on the interest it earns, are going to pay taxes one more time when they spend it. And to those with accumulated wealth, I just say, you're already paying this. America is paying a hidden 22% sales tax today. It is just not recognized. I think, the, I think the transparency is a huge issue. I think my mother should know every time she buys a loaf, a loaf of bread how much goes to the government. I think that we've untaxed 47% of America's income taxpayers. Uh, we have a huge bias for more government and more taxes because of that. And I think that everybody should pay every time they purchase something. And uh, Mr. Chairman, if you have to take any questions. Thank you, uh, Mr. Linder. Next uh, to arrive was uh, Mr. Burgess from Texas. Welcome, and uh, we're pleased to receive your testimony. 
Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. I thank the ranking member and members of the committee. I, too, have a, a formal statement that I will leave for the record. The uh, one, uh, one thing I feel I must correct, uh, there may be a panel of experts down here, but I am not an expert. I'm a simple country doctor who was elected to Congress. But in that guise of being just a regular guy, back in 1995 or 1996, I picked up and read an extraordinary book called The Flat Tax. I believed in the flat tax. I could not understand why Congress was holding back. If they had a concept that was this good in front of them, it seemed like a reasonable proposal. Let's debate it. Let's, let's hear about it. And let's see if we can't pass something that is simpler and fairer for the American people. When I came to Congress, uh, believing in the flat tax as I had, I thought it was important to keep that concept alive, and I have tried to do that. The difference in the flat tax that I have introduced this year, or, or la actually last year in 1783, was I made the flat tax voluntary. One of the concerns I had, uh, and, and uh, Mr. Spratt eloquently pointed to it when they did the closet cleaning back in 1986, again, I was a regular guy back in North Texas uh, taking care of patients, but the closet cleaning resulted in a drastic change in behavior. People who had been encouraged to run their business or construct their lives in a particular way suddenly had the rug pulled out from under them. And in Texas, the real estate sector and the energy sector were hit particularly hard. And as a consequence, we had some significant employment problems in Texas, and it affected my patients. And I got to see that pain up close and personal as, as people worked through those problems. I feel that it is important for whatever we do up here to inflict minimal pain on the American people. And for that reason, I think making the flat tax voluntary allow a family or a business to elect whether or not to go into a simplified tax system. That is, if they like what they've got going on in the IRS code, they should be able to stay in the code. But if they're willing to give up their shoebox full of receipts and the quality time with their accountant every April, we ought to give them the opportunity for a flat tax. I believe that part of our job here in Congress is to trust the American people to make the right decision. I think the voluntary flat tax would uh, conform with being a pro-growth system, and I believe that the flat tax will encourage savings and investment. I'll give you another example from my life as a private citizen. When I started my private practice of medicine, I thought the prudent thing to do would be to keep three months of operating capital in a, in a bank account where I could readily access it if I, if I came on hard times. Having to borrow to make a payroll one time, I was extremely uncomfortable with that concept, and I thought, well, next time I'm going to have those funds available. But what happened when I did that was I ended up paying corporate taxes on that money at the end of that year, and when that money, that money eventually came back to the practice and was distributed as income, we got to pay taxes on it again. And my partners weren't happy with my prudence uh, when that was pointed out to them by our accountant, and we did change accountants shortly after that. I think it is reasonable to provide another option for our system that will reduce the complexity for the American people. And Mr. Spratt again eloquently alluded to the fact that we do need to have a tax code that is more simple, and I agree, and I believe the voluntary flat tax conforms to that. We take a lot from the American people. We take their money, but Mr. Chairman, just as importantly, we take their time. And Mr. Linder, Dr. Linder eloquently pointed out with uh, the fair tax that he would be giving time back to the American people, and that's exactly right with the voluntary flat tax. 
we would offer the American people 6.1 billion, billion hours of compliance time that they now spend filling out their forms and, and reading the regulations that we could refund to them immediately. Um, Mr. Spratt also said we needed to make the system fair, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, one of the uh, moments that comes to me was back in 1993 when you all passed a, a retroactive tax back to January 1st of that year. By some strange coincidence, President Clinton and I earned about the same amount of money that year. Well, actually, I earned a couple of thousand dollars more, but I think I had a better year. But Mr. Clinton, the, the president, paid about 19 or 20 percent of his total income in taxes. I paid 33 percent. And I think he was eligible for public housing that year. So clearly, the system did not treat the two of us fairly. I think the flat tax will ease the burden on the taxpayer and ease the burden on entrepreneurs. I know as a young person starting out, if someone said you can either form a close relationship with your accountant through the rest of your business life, or you can just simply fill out a postcard size form, I would, I would elect for the postcard size form. The uh, fact of the matter is there are other countries who have adopted a concept along the lines of a flat tax, the former Soviet Union being one, and their economy has responded accordingly. The flat tax, and this is, I think, one of the most important points, the flat tax right now is doable. With a minimum of heavy lifting, we could make a voluntary flat tax available to the American people, and we wouldn't, uh, we, we wouldn't have to do, it wouldn't inflict that much pain on the American people. But immediately, it would eliminate the marriage penalty. And consider this, for a husband or wife whose spouse earns at uh, $60,000 a year, that spouse pays in at the 50% level from the first dollar earned for the rest of their life. That's not fair. That is truly a marriage penalty, and we could do away with that. We have uh, made some efforts to repeal the death tax, which is one of the things that's put us on a glide path to a fundamentally flatter, fairer system. The alternative minimum tax is really what's looming out there, which is going to give us the political courage to do something about our tax system because the American people are going to demand it when the alternative minimum tax begins to erode more and more of their earning power. Finally, the flat tax would eliminate the uh, capital gains tax and would allow for immediate expensing of capital equipment. The 2001 and 2003 tax cuts were good starts on appealing, repealing the harmful provisions, but now it's time for us in Congress to finish the job and give the American people the power to choose uh, an alternative tax that would be fairer. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Burgess. Next uh, up is uh, a colleague from the Ways and Means Committee, Max Allen from Texas. Welcome, and we're pleased to receive your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good to be here with you this morning. Certainly. Uh, Mr. Lampson was to testify to Olson and was not able to be here. I'd like to ask unanimous consent at this point that his testimony be made part of the record. Without objection. Please proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, I wholeheartedly support meaningful efforts to reform our tax system to reduce a comparatively extreme burden uh, and to ensure efficiency combined with ease. We need to focus our efforts on reforming our nation's revenue generation in ways that ease the burden on working families and small businesses, are fiscally responsible and realistic, and provide a foundation for solid economic growth. Along those lines, I would like to comment for just a moment uh, this morning on H.R. 25 the national retail sales tax. Uh, the unquestioned reality is that consumption taxes such as the national retail sales tax proposed in H.R. 25 are extraordinarily regressive and punitive on the vast majority of working families. 
far from providing the much-touted relief, a national retail sales tax would dramatically increase the effective tax rate on at least 60% of American working families while simultaneously dramatically decreasing the effective tax rate on the 20% of Americans who earn the most money. An additional problem <clears throat> arises from the proposal embodied in H.R. 25 because the tax increase imposed on the 60% of American working families is based on the excessively rosy revenue assumptions of its proponents. The reality of the scope of the tax increase under H.R. 25 is likely far worse, according to most experts. According to the Joint Committee on Taxation, the 23% tax-inclusive rate is not revenue-neutral and, in fact, grossly understates the national retail sales tax rate required to maintain current services. The JCT estimate suggests that the actual rate required to maintain revenue neutrality under the H.R. 25 proposal would exceed 50%. Economists agree that the rate proposed in H.R. 25 will have extraordinarily deleterious economic effects on the federal tax burden and household budgets of our nation's working families. Despite its proponents' claims, H.R. 25 is anything but pro-family and pro-business and pro-growth. It amounts to a massive tax increase on a clear majority of Americans. Under current law, effective tax rates start low and increase as income goes up. Accordingly, at present, the effective federal tax rate on the lowest 20% of earners is around 5%, while the top 1% of earners, individuals making in excess of $315,000 per year, uh, have an effective federal tax rate of 25%. By contrast, under H.R. 25 is introduced, at minimum, and this is based on the assumption that H.R. 25 is revenue neutral, which is almost certainly not the case, 60% uh, of American workers would experience a federal tax increase, in many cases a dramatic increase, while the top 1% of earners would see their effective federal tax burden drop to 5%. Under current law, a family of four is exempt from the federal income tax until their household income exceeds $40,000. Thanks to their earned income tax credit, a family of four with an income below $25,000 does not even bear the burden of payroll taxes and is, in effect, exempt from all federal earnings taxes. By contrast, under H.R. 25 is introduced, these lower-income working families would experience dramatic and potentially devastating federal tax increases. Instead of being virtually exempt from federal tax, these families would see fully 30% of every dollar of their income, over $19,000, eaten away by the national retail sales tax. For hardworking families such as these who are already struggling, such a tax increase would push many over the edge and into bankruptcy. Even working families with moderately higher incomes would see their federal tax burden increase dramatically if H.R. 25 were enacted. A homeowning family of four with a household income of $65,000 and more or less typical expenses and saving patterns would see its federal tax more than double from 4417 under current law to $9,600 under the proposed national retail sales tax embodied in H.R. 25. Uh, tax affects not only individuals but also local and state governments. In Texas, H.R. 25 would cost state and local governments $20 billion per year, which according to one estimate could require property tax increases of up to 80%. Again, there's no doubt that our tax code is riddled with complexity and must be simplified, but there is just as little doubt that increasing the federal tax burden on the vast majority of working Americans is not an appropriate solution to that problem. That is exactly what the National Retail Sales Tax proposed in H.R. 25 would do. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate the opportunity to be before your committee this morning. Thank you, Mr. Spratt.
Did the gentleman have a proposal for reform? I, I understood. I I'll, we'll mark you down as against H.R. 25, I guess, is what your point is. Uh, yes, Mr. Chairman. We were here this morning to talk. I was commenting H.R. 25. Uh, I don't have a particular proposal at this time other than to comment on H.R. Uh, 25 would not be a, a, it would be a simplification, but it would be an increase in the tax burden on working families and local government and small business, and I don't think it's a, a viable alternative uh, to the current progressive system uh, that we have. So I think Mr. Linder's proposal should not be considered, uh, while we certainly should consider uh, some sort of uh, simplification of the current code. This isn't a... Uh, Mr. Uh, English, a uh, colleague from the Ways and Means Committee from Pennsylvania, we're pleased to receive your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and it's a real privilege to be here this morning. Mr. Chairman, the American tax system is a Frankenstein's monster that haunts individual taxpayers while casting a cold shadow over the productive sectors of the U.S. economy. It is too complicated. It is riddled with obvious inequities. It punishes savings and investment while reducing economic growth and burdening domestic industry struggling to remain competitive. To address these inequities, and because I want to reform the American tax system in a way that makes sense to average tax citizens, I introduced the Simplified USA Tax Act, H.R. 269. Not only do we need a tax code that is fair and sensible, we need one that is stable. As bad, as awful as the current tax code is, and I'm one of its severest critics, the last thing we need to do is enact some reform that is so radical and experimental that we have to redo it all over again a few years hence. The new tax code I've developed, the Simplified USA Tax, is based on sound and familiar principles that are easy to understand and will provide the correct incentives for today's modern economy. Although the Joint Committee on Taxation has never completed a revenue score of SUSAT, it is designed to be revenue neutral. The USA tax for individuals is simplicity itself, a minimalist approach that achieves a great deal without a lot of complex rules. In terms of past studies of the complexity of the tax of this system, they have indicated it would reduce the complexity of the current tax system by 75% as opposed to 91% uh, for the flat tax. In addition to providing a simple way to calculate taxes, the USA tax brings several key reforms to the table. First, the tax code must give Americans a fair opportunity to save part of their earnings. Thrift has helped provide Americans the security and independence that is the foundation of, of freedom. Productivity raises our living standards to the highest in the world. In my tax reform proposal, USA stands for unlimited savings allowance. Everyone is allowed an unlimited Roth IRA, which they can put the portion of each year's income they save after paying taxes and living expenses. After five years, all money in the account can be withdrawn for any purpose, and all withdrawals, including accumulated interest and other earnings or principal, are tax-free. Nothing can be simpler, and nothing would give people a better opportunity to save, especially young people. The tax code must also give everyone the opportunity to keep what they save and, if they wish, to pass it on to succeeding generations. My tax reform proposal repeals the federal estate and gift taxes permanently. 
Under the new tax code, tax rates must be low, especially for wage earners who now pay both an income tax and a FICA payroll tax. The simplified USA tax starts out with low tax rates, 15% at the bottom, 25% in the middle, 30% at the top. Then the rates are reduced even further by allowing wage earners a full tax credit for the FICA payroll tax that they pay that is withheld from their paychecks under current law. I don't propose to repeal the payroll tax because of its impact uh, on the Social Security system. But the simplified USA tax would provide tax relief for all Americans, especially who own their home, give to their church, educate their children, and set aside some savings for a better tomorrow. What we anticipate under this tax system is very low tax rates on workers' wages in the 7 to 17 percent range for nearly all Americans. Under my proposal, everyone gets a deduction for the mortgage interest on their home and for charitable contributions they make. We also provide for a deduction for tuition paid for college and post-secondary education. Generous personal and family exemptions are also allowed under my proposal. On a joint return, the family exemption is a little over $8,000, and there's an additional $2,700 exemption for each member of the family. Thus, a married couple with two children pays no tax on their first $18,940 of income. This tax is simplicity itself. The tax return will be short, only a page or two for most of us, but more to the point, the tax return will be comprehensible. Uh, in summing up, I also want to make the point, my proposal contains a better and new way of taxing corporations and other businesses that will allow them to compete and win in global markets in a way that exports American-made products, not American jobs. I've studied this issue, and I believe, if enacted in America, this innovative approach to business taxation will soon become the worldwide standard to which all other countries subscribe. In a nutshell, it is a simple subtraction method value added tax on the business side uh, that would provide full expensing and also, importantly, border adjustability so that our products as they go offshore do not contain the cost of the tax system built in. And as we import products, they will pay their share of taxation. I believe uh, that this is a huge reform uh, and a potentially a hybrid of several of the other systems, including the flatter tax uh, that have been pro proposed and also the consumption tax, because this system has all of the incentives of a consumption tax. I apologize to my colleagues, though, for one thing. This tax reform will not fit on a bumper sticker. Uh, I realize it will require a certain amount of salesmanship, but I do believe it, it has the potential to provide America with a modern tax system uh, that will allow our economy to grow, savings to grow, investment to grow, productivity to grow, uh, and improve our trade situation. And I thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank the gentleman for his proposal. Uh, next uh, is a former member of the Budget Committee. I, I noticed you didn't break out in hives when you walked in, so that's that's at least good news. Uh, welcome back to the uh, to the committee, and we're pleased to receive your uh, testimony, Mr. Price. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's good to be back, uh, Mr. Spratt, other other members. It's an honor to be able to testify before you today on on this important topic. 
Uh, I'd like to begin by saying there's no question in my mind that the U.S. tax code has become excessively complex and convoluted. I, I believe we probably would all agree on that, as would the American people. The IRS estimates it takes the average American 28 hours plus to complete a tax return. I believe most Americans actually would accept a basic tax reform bargain, that is, fewer deductions and credits in exchange for lower credit, lower rates, and a simpler system. And I'd hope that with all the focus on taxes these past few years, Congress would have done something to simplify our tax code. Instead, the changes to the tax code during the past four years have made it more complex. I believe they've made it less fair. At the heart of the proposals before us today, the ones that you've been considering, is whether or not the United States will have a progressive or a regressive tax system. Particularly in the midst of a sluggish economic recovery, there are strong arguments for a progressive tax that puts more money in the hands of those most likely to spend it and stimulate the economy. But ultimately, this is a debate about values. I was brought up believing that from those to whom much is given, much is expected. That principle at the heart of the progressive tax structure has guided our tax system through America's most prosperous economic years. A progressive tax is sound economic policy, and it's indicative of an advanced and enlightened society where those who have reaped the benefits of living in a free, stable, and prosperous land understand their obligation to contribute to the common good. The problem with the flat tax and the sales tax being discussed today is that both violate the principle of progressive taxation, resulting in significant tax savings for the rich, significant tax increases for the poor and middle class. Such a redistribution of the tax burden is bad economic policy, and I believe it's ethically deficient as well violating our common sense of equity and justice. Because of time constraints, I'll focus my comments on the national sales tax, uh, a proposal that uh, has been introduced, has some 55 co-sponsors, um, H.R. 25. Nationwide, only Americans in the top 20% of income would benefit from converting from an income tax to a national sales tax. Everyone else would see their tax burden increase by an average of 50%. Some national sales tax advocates have described the tax rates required in their proposals in a way that is simply misleading, creating an inaccurate perception that we could replace the current tax system with a national sales tax rate as low as 15%. It just isn't so. The Joint Tax Committee, the Brookings Institution, the Citizens for Tax Justice, and the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy have all stated that in order to keep the federal tax revenues constant, a 50 to 60 percent sales tax would be required. That is, a levy of 50 to 60 dollars would be imposed on a 100 dollar purchase. I'd like to draw your attention to the chart on the screen, which shows the grossly unfair redistributive effects of what H.R. 25 would do in my home state of North Carolina. I know that the supporters of H.R. 25 claim that the bill's rebate will offset the regressive impact on the poor. So the numbers in the chart include all of the rebates and other assumptions in H.R. 25, with the only difference being that I'm using a true revenue-neutral tax rate of 50%, which in fact is a conservative estimate. The reason the poor would be negatively affected by this type of proposal is that they would lose the earned income tax credit and other income tax rebates they have under the current system. In North Carolina, a working family in the bottom 20% income bracket makes on average $9,100 a year. A national sales tax, assuming a 50% tax rate, including the rebate but also eliminating the EITC, would increase their federal tax burden by $4,214.
For a family in the 20 to 40 percent income bracket making an average of $19,700 a year, this national sales tax would increase their tax burden by $4,013. For the middle 20 percent, the average tax burden would increase by $3,811. For those in the 60 to 80 percent income bracket, the taxes would increase by $2,935. And even North Carolinians in the 80 to 95 percent income bracket, making up to $124,000, would see their taxes increase by an average of $600 a year. So why are we even considering a tax proposal that would significantly raise taxes on 9 out of 10 Americans? The answer to that question can be found by following the money. The proponents of a national sales tax cannot deny that if low and moderate income people are paying more in taxes, then other people must be benefiting by paying less. And we know who those people are. North Carolinians making between $124,000 and $333,000 would see their tax burden decrease by an average of $4,722 under a national sales tax under the terms of H.R. 25. And those making over $333,000 a year would see their tax burden decrease by an average of $151,268. Finally, here are a few concrete examples of how North Carolinians would be affected by a national sales tax. The median cost of a house in North Carolina last year was $110,000. A national sales tax would raise the cost of buying a new home in North Carolina to $165,000, while at the same time eliminating the significant home ownership tax incentive of being able to write off mortgage interest payments. It would, rise, it would raise the cost of a $20,000 new car to $30,000. It would raise a $100 grocery bill to $150, a $200 bill for medication, $200 bill for medication to $300, and a gallon of gas from $2 to $3. And seniors would be especially hard hit because most are paying very little tax now because they have little or no income. But instead, they're spending down their savings, and therefore, they do much worse under the national sales tax than they do under our current system. Mr. Chairman, it boggles my mind to imagine that any legislator would even consider such a policy as H.R. 25. Yet I'm sad to say that even some members of my own North Carolina delegation have expressed their support for this gross redistribution of the tax burden. The tax proposals, uh, this, this and other tax proposals being considered today I believe do not represent what's best for my constituents and my state, or what's best for the economy, or what is right. And I believe that as the elected representatives of the people, we can and do much, we can and should do much, much better. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, my understanding is that uh, Mr. Rangel, our final, final witness, is uh, appropriately uh, uh, detained at the uh, conference on uh, Fisk and, and the tax bill that's being uh, discussed and negotiated. They are having a conference now, and so I guess I would ask unanimous consent that uh, at this point, the record, uh, uh, Mr. Rangel would be allowed to put in uh, written testimony uh, because I'm, I'm sure he has some very interesting